Wow, that, that is a beautiful song, and it's so beautiful, I think you could, we could almost miss the meaning of the words, which is you're saying, God, I'm an open book, I'm an empty page, write your story on my heart. Well, I just want you to know something. That can be really scary. I just want to warn you. If you say, God, write your story, write a new story in my life, um, look out. Because he's going to do something amazing. In fact, I was thinking on the back of the, your handout, one of the things that we love to do is we love to collect people's stories. It says share your story of how God has shown up in your life and worked in your life because that's what we're sharing all the time. And for me, every story feels like a reward from Jesus Christ to the rest of us. And today you're going to hear one of those sermons from the seats. Next month we're going to be doing this. And I actually wish we were doing it for the whole year because there's nothing more inspiring than what God has done through you. Because I want you to know something that makes Kensington a bit of an unusual place, is when you say, where, where do the ideas come for the things that Kensington does here and in the world? They came from people in these seats. The anti-FGM movement that we have among the Pocot women in northwest Kenya that's affected several hundred thousand women, that was birthed by five women that were just sitting in the seats here. Celebrate recovery was birthed out there. Short-term missions was birthed in the sea. I'm telling you, the things that happened didn't come from anybody on our staff having a great idea. They came from you. And they're being birthed all the time. In fact, the Move Out Gathering at the end of the month is all about the stories and the movements in the hearts and the lives of people. And it's absolutely thrilling to see those. You know, a lot of our Costa Rica, Costa Rica connection that, that we've had a team... That was birthed out of Clinton Township and people here that have just kept that going for years. I'm just saying that's what God's doing all the time. And so I really want to celebrate that with you. And I want to tell you what a privilege that I get to kick off the new year. I feel like a lot of you I haven't seen in a year, but it's just been since Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve was amazing, wasn't it? The team, the whole thing, unbelievable. Um, and I want to say in light of 2020, this is my lyric from this song. Lord, author of my hope, maker of the stars, let me be your work of art. I'm an empty page, an open book. Write your story on my heart. That's what I want for 2020 because you know what's amazing? When I set all the goals for Kensington back in the early, 1990 to 1995, God was putting these things in my heart and the goals that Kensington set weren't really collaborative. Those were, those were kind of birthed in me. And I remember thinking in 1995 when we said we wanted to have 40 multiplying churches in the U.S. and we wanted to have global partners, I did not know what God would do. But here we are, and it's 2020. And a couple of bad hair decades later, I find myself much older and life has gone much faster than I thought. But you know, what God has done is unbelievable. Nearly 50,000 people at Christmas Eve, 80 churches that we've helped start in the U.S., probably more than that, but those that we have our fingerprint on, uh, thousands of churches globally. And you know, it was God working in people in these seats. And he's going to do something this year. I'm praying that he's going to write a new story in your heart. And because of these are dangerous lyrics, I want to say something. Chris Zarba and I were having breakfast yesterday, and uh, I just want to say I bought. <laughs> and over the last few months, we've had so, so many conversations and uh, I think God has just really grown, certainly my love for him, and I, th I think he loves me too. And 
in a really neat way, but of how Jesus has worked in our lives in ways we've never expected. And one of the things we've done is we've gone back to our childhood experiences. And a lot of those experiences we've never shared with anybody because some of them are painful, some of them are offensive. And I just love how God has called us to embrace in our lives his growth, his movement in our lives. And you guys have asked about Chris. Chris has just finished the 90 days that we asked him to take a break to work on gaining some new perspective. The next couple weeks he's going to be meeting with the elders, reflecting on things that he's been learning. I think it's been a great, humbling experience for him and for me and for our team. And uh, I'm excited for you guys at some point here soon to hear some of those lessons that God has been showing him. But if I've learned anything from 1990 to 2020, it's this. God brings beauty out of the ashes of our lives. That, and, and Yeah, you can celebrate that. It, it's the things you hate the most and wish had never happened that somehow God uses those things. And it's really not that often that God has made things beautiful out of the perfection of my life as, as if I could find any perfection. Beauty from ashes. And here's what I realized. Everyone has ashes. Everyone has crumbled dreams. I watched Tom Brady last night walk off that football field. And I love Tom Brady. I've been inspired by his devotion. It's really cool. There was, a, there was a Facebook series a couple years ago called Tom Brady versus the Game. And I thought it seems to be very little room for God in his life. But, but his personal discipline and devotion to his family and his craft was inspiring to me. And I thought, here he is in a moment where you think after all that, you'd be on top of the world, but he's at a place just like the rest of us. What do I do with the ashes of my life? Nobody's exempt. You can't, there's not enough money in the world to protect you from that. There's not enough plastic surgery. There's not enough physical trainers or dietitians or anti-aging lotion potions that can stop you from facing that life brings ashes. But here's what Jesus does that nobody else promises. He says, I'm going to bring beauty out of those things. I was thinking about the things in our life that, where we learn that suffering is hard. I go back to 1976, homecoming for Wheaton College. You, you guys know, I, I mean, I've made no secret that I was a pretty awesome quarterback at the football powerhouse of the Midwest, Wheaton College, which all of you follow carefully in sports. It was such a joke. We go, we go back and my buddies talk about it. But it was football, and a lot of us got hurt <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> I remember at homecoming, Carthage, I, I made a very short run. I never ran the ball because I was the world's slowest quarterback in history. And I, and I remember stepping out of bounds and just stopping and looking back, and this linebacker from Carthage kept coming, and he hit me. Uh, right on the right side of my sh- front, front of my shoulder, knocked me back through the air, and I landed about 10 feet through the air on an 18-inch cement curb on my spine. And I immediately lost all the feeling in my ex- lower extremities. I thought I was bleeding to death, but it wasn't. I wasn't bleeding at all. It was just you know, about hemorrhaging inside. And that started me on a journey of 30 years 
of kind of unrelenting back spasms. I didn't know that that was going to change my life. I went from a very um, just love competition, love full court basketball, you know, every afternoon after class and college and, and, and into my 20s and, just, and, and I suffered. And my suffering's nothing compared to probably half of you in this room. But here's what I learned. I learned that suffering is hard, but that our pain can be used. Somehow, our pain can be used for good if we'll let it happen. Dave Wilson would say, if he were here, he'd say, pain makes you bitter or better. Like it's, going, like it's a choice that you find yourself in. But in all the difficulties of our lives, I found that God used the suffering and the difficulties way more than he ever uses successes. And you think, wow, I want to be successful, so I'll have something to share with people. You know what you find? People are interested. They're not that interested in your success. But they're interested in your humanness. And so here's what I, I would love you to take a screenshot of this, because this is what I've seen at Kensington. Now we're in our 30th year, is that our pain can become our platform. Like God works in your pain to give you a passion for others, to give you a compassion for others, to give you concern about the world, to make you willing to get out of your comfort zone, to, to love other people, to do things maybe that you never expected that you would do, and that our pain can become our platform. And l- l- look at this quote. This is not mine, but I love it. It says, our experiences in life can be used to help others. And God equips people to go out to other people in similar situations to serve them and speak words of life and encouragement. Here's what I want you to know. There's not one person in this room who has the identical life experiences that you have or that you have. you got very different stages of life and experiences. No one has your experiences. Therefore, no one is prepared like you are to share with other people who've had a similar journey that you've had. And it's out of our pain that God prepares us for this. I remember nothing that I ever wanted more than to be a father. And I ended up being, guess some of you know me, I ended up being, I know this is a shock, a little overbearing as a parent. And all my kids at some level rebelled against me. It crushed my heart. And it was deserved, a lot of it. But you know what it did? I remember thinking I had the answers to people about parenting. (laughs) Not anymore. I don't do parenting seminars. Except maybe to say, here's 20 dumb things you can do as a parent. But God used that pain to give me such a compassion for other parents. Like, give me a compassion for people that are struggling with their identity, struggling with their, with their connection. All of a sudden, instead of being Mr. Know-it-all, I was Mr. Broken-all. And, all, and I learned that God actually used that more. Your experience, your pain, becoming your platform, begin to care for others. Our good friend Dave Gibbons, who spoke at the Move Out Gathering about a year and a half ago, he says this, our pain becomes the scars that people see that points them to the healing power of God. That not only does he heal, but he transforms what could have destroyed us. 
Our, our pain becomes our badge of credibility. Our pain is our connection to humanity. I mean, is there anything worse in the world than a person that never has a problem and thinks they have the answer to everybody else's problems? Of that person, you know. You don't want to be around that person. But a person has been broken, humiliated. Somebody said, I actually said this. Some, this has really been said to me. Say, Steve, you're such a humble person. I said, really, I'm not. I'm a humiliated person. When you go three months at a time and you can't get out of bed to go into the bathroom, to use the bathroom, you're not walking around going, yeah, I'm Steve Andrews. Because <laughs> you can't even walk. Because you feel like your life's taken away from you. And these scars all of a sudden become your connection to other people's suffering. There was a young man that came down to me after the service and he's on the verge of losing his house and got a wife and three kids and he's just weeping with me. You know, you want, you want to make it better. But I thought one thing is, it may be, this is the, like the worst moment of his life. Maybe years down the road, God is going to take this pain and he's going to be an encouragement in a way that he never could have been to other people. Dave Gibbons says, our pain points us to our destiny and prepares us for resurrection. Death is the prelude to a new life. When the dreams die around you, God gives you something unique. And so I thought, what, what better day than here, 2020, to say, let's start an amazing new year where we say, God, take all the junk in my life. Write a new story. Write a new story. Do something to me that I never thought. Some of you came in here today and you're thinking, eh, my life's nothing. My, 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 my life is no big deal. Let me tell you something. There's no one like you. There's no one that's going to have the connections that you have with other people. You say, well, Sonia Boletta will do it or Tracy will do it or Aaron will do it or Chris will do it. No, you're going to do it. Because God's prepared you for it. And the worst parts of your life are part of that preparation. To have now his strength to face everything that's going to come this year. And I want to share with you a scripture that I love. It's kind of going to be my 2020 scripture. It's in Romans 8 where the Apostle Paul, who's one of the coming later to Jesus, kind of in an unexpected way, and he ends up starting a bunch of churches. He's like, he's a Kensington guy. He starts new churches. And he says this, and he suffered a lot. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, he's talking about present sufferings where his friends have been killed, murdered, where he's been whipped to the point of death, where he's been stoned with rocks and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. He's been imprisoned. He's been lied about. And he says, you know what? It's not even worth comparing with the glory that's coming. You know what this word glory means? It means splendor or brightness or magnificence. Magnificence. God's going to share his magnificence with us. How? Out of the victories of our life? Not, not so much. Out of the brokenness and the pain of our life, God is going to use that more than anything else. I've seen it over and over and over again. And he's going to prepare us for the victories through the, through the losses. My, I have uh, five grandkids. By the way, my sixth grandchild is coming March 8th. She's going to be a girl. 
and she'd give me my second granddaughter. And my oldest granddaughter, my firstborn grandchild, would always say to me, Gimpy. It's a great name, isn't it? <laughs> Gimpy. She says, you know, I'm your beautiful only granddaughter. And she came to me the other day. She says, Gimpy, you know, I can't say that anymore. I'm your oldest beautiful granddaughter. And I thought, out of her, I thought, I look at her, my, my firstborn grandchild, and I remember the four years where infertility specialists told us 35 years ago that we would never have children. Out of that glory. I didn't know how it was going to come. I have adopted grandchildren now that have come like out of another place in time. Glory. Magnificence. Anyway, CK is one of my grandsons. He's going to be five in April. And in our neighborhood, we live in a house neighborhood where most of the house is about 2,000 square feet. It's one of those neighborhoods where everybody wants now, you know, where I think a lot of people are tired of the giant houses and are ready for just for a normal house. And so we, we love this neighborhood where there's a lady who lives in one of the smaller homes at the top of our sub. And uh, she goes all out for Christmas and all out for Halloween and all out for Easter. And her yard is always bright in colors and, you know, it's like the you know, Christmas vacation kind of thing. And uh, CK, and it's a little house, like 1,500 square feet. And CK, last year, when he was just, before he turned four, he, he coined it the Magnificent House. Well, if you were to drive by it, that's probably not the first phase. You know, first phrase that would come to your mind, the Magnificent House, a little 1,500 square foot house, you know, a little yard, you know, a couple of shrubs, whatever. But to my grandkids, this wonderful lady in our subdivision has shared her glory, her magnificence with everybody in the neighborhood. She's made it, our neighborhood, such a more beautiful place. And my grandkids, every time they come to our neighborhood, multiple times a week, want to see the magnificent house. Well, guess what? Guess what Romans 8 says? It says, God's making you the magnificent house. You're going to be the inhabitor of his glory he's going to place in you and work through you. You ever thought about that? When I look, at, when I look in the mirror this morning, I didn't, I, my first word wasn't glory. <laughs> you know, my, my first was like, wow, when did this happen to you? <laughs> you know, but when God sees me, he sees his glory transferred to me. In fact, this is what I see. Look at Romans 8.22. I really relate to this. He goes, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's the first fruit? Jesus is the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship or to daughtership, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that moment when we see Jesus face to face and he's going to take all the groaning away. Well, guys, some of you are young. A lot of you are younger here. You don't even know what groaning is yet. Just... It's just one of those things to look forward to. But you groan. But I learned something that I'd never realized before. He talked about groaning as in the pains of childbirth. But here's what's weird. When he says groan, this word groaning, if you go back and look in the Greek, it literally means groaning together. I was shocked by this because I thought, when you're in pains of childbirth, you're not really sharing that with anybody. And I'm really thankful that I didn't have to fully share that. In fact, does anybody remember the skit we did years ago where two of our guys went in and got electric shocks to 
try to identify. Remember that? Like it went viral, millions of people watching around the world. It's hilarious. Because men don't understand that. But here's what I want to know. Here's what I want you to know. Groaning is never meant to be alone, but shared in true, compassionate community with Jesus and with others. Because what Jesus says to you today is you're not going to ever be alone in your groaning. I'm going to be right next to you. I'm going to be with you all the way. That's how much I love you. I'm never going to let you go. Because everybody feels alone. Everybody groans. Everybody has loss. Everybody has grief. And it says, but let's groan together. Because I thought, if we would have groan together as a community, we could change the world. The groaning that people felt, uh, just a handful of people years ago felt about the, the Pocot in northwest Kenya that were all dying from dirty water. Like I, the first time I went there in 03, you couldn't, even, you couldn't even find a person over 40 years old hardly. You're like, my God, what? how could this be right? And all of a sudden, people here started groaning over their pain. And therefore, we became, we became brothers and sisters forever into eternity. And the result was millions of dollars of clean water, of wells, because people groaned together. I, when Paula was pregnant with our first kid, it was... It was like the worst experience of my whole life. And I wasn't even pregnant. <laughs> the, Lindy was in the wrong way and it ended up being a major forceps delivery. And I remember doctor, the, the doctor, I, I, I want to kill him when I think about him, uh, in Christian love. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things is we were getting ready for the delivery and uh, one, one of the, the, the ladies said, we have a bunch of our student nurses today. Can they watch the delivery through this glass window? And we're like, Whatever, <laughs> you know, just get this baby out. So I'm standing up by Paula's, by her head, and it's, it, it just, I'm not going to make a it was terrible. But I'll never forget the look of these 10 young, they're all women, young women, all young women nurses looking through the windows like, <laughs> literally like, because a lot of things happened that went wrong that day. There was, it was really a bad deal. And I remember being, utterly helpless, completely terrified. But out of that was Lindy. You see, all of that, the result is what? One of the most wonderful humans to ever live. My first daughter, incredible woman. Quirky, yeah, like her mother. <laughs> but this gift, I thought, that's what happens when we groan together. And like, that's what Kensington is, is, imperfect people. That's why we say, if you're new here today, like, I hope you enjoy it. If you're looking for a perfect church, go somewhere else. Because you, you got to be screwed up to be here, to enjoy this place. Because it's about, our it's about our pain and our scars are the best things we have to offer each other. We never wanted to be a church where we're like, hey, everything's great. Because you know what? Everything's not great. I, don't I can't ever think of a day. A lot of great things in my life. But there are a lot of days, man, they're not great. A lot of things that... I'm burdened about that. My heart aches over, and so does yours. He goes on to say, not only glory or groaning, but I love this word hope. He says it's, it, hope is a part of this pain being our platform because when you suffer and you start to care about others, what do people need in their worst moments? Just a glimmer of hope. 
hope, the Greek word is elpis. It's the expectation of good. It's the expectation that Jesus is going to work in and through our lives and in our circumstances and in spite of our circumstances. It goes on to say in verse 26, Paul says, in the same way that Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You realize that when you're groaning, some of you thought when you're groaning and you're grieving and you're suffering, that God's looking at you going, what's wrong with you? Why don't you suck it up? Why don't you grow up? Quit being a baby. You know what, you know what the scripture says God's doing? You're groaning, you're hurting. It's like God's like, oh, man. Mm. God's feeling it with us. He's with us. Jesus came to walk among us. There's, the Bible says there's nothing that we've experienced that Jesus doesn't understand. He understands all of this journey, and he groans with us. The, and so he's really saying here that the Holy Spirit is groaning for you and me. I love that. I got one last phenomenal insight into this that, that I've never seen before. I just love it. This last verse, he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I, I grew up, people butchered this verse. They're like, oh, everything's going to work out for good. No, that's a bunch of crap. It's not true. But God, it says, is going to be working all of these things out somehow for things that will be good, even though the things that are happening are anything but. Because this is a place of tears. This world is a broken world. You just go back to Genesis chapter 3, of the very beginning of the story of Adam and Eve and the brokenness of the world. But Jesus came in this world to walk among us, and it's amazing. This is the part I've never seen, where it says in verse 28, you can pop it up there one more time. It says, God works for the good of those who love him. Here's what I had never seen before. This word works is literally means God is working together with us for something good. In other words, I think a lot of us think, well, bad things are happening, but God's going to work something like we're a test tube rat. Like here we are in the test tube and God's doing some experiment with us. No, this is says God's working with us together in fellowship. In other words, it's the whole idea that Jesus Christ came into the world to walk on the same roads, have the same pains, the same worries. He had blisters on his feet, just like we did. He got a sore throat when he got a cold. He was hungry. He cried tears when he was sad, and he laughed when things were funny. Isn't that amazing? And he could have left us in the ashes, but he brought life instead. And you know what? When Jesus ascended to the Father after he rose again from the dead, you know what's amazing is that Jesus is in heaven, our perfect Savior, and he's covered in scars. He had the hands of a carpenter. He had a, a, nails driven into his hands and his feet. He had a sword rammed into his side. His back was fleshed open, almost beaten to death by whips. Our God is a scarred God. Not impervious to your pain or your suffering or your cries for help. Every pain you felt, Jesus has felt. 
And those wounds that were open wounds will eventually become scars, and those scars will be reminders of us of the healing journey that Jesus Christ takes people on. And as we finish up the service, I want you to see the story of a friend of mine, Scott Newport. We're going to receive our offering at this time. Scott is a carpenter. He is a man with scars. And everything I've talked about, he's lived to the nth degree. And so I want you to hear his story and be encouraged by it. As we do that, the usher is going to receive this. For those of you who are visiting, again, this financial moment, you don't have to do this, but I want to thank all of those who are partnering with us and moving in the world. It's absolutely wonderful for you to do that. And for those of you that are new, our, our dream for you is that you go right to the hub. If you've never given to Kensington before, you can, you can do it right here. And uh, again, I'll remind you, it says you can give on the app to Kensington on a regular basis in less than 10 seconds. That's only if you're under 35. Uh, if you're over 35, 40, it's definitely going to take you probably 30 to 45 seconds. So, uh, But hey, there are some other great things that come with age. So as we do that, I want you um, to see uh, one of my, actually one of my grouse hunting buddies um, from 25 years ago and then the journey that God took him on. This is Jesus Christ at work. Watch this. Thinking back now, I can remember the first piece of furniture I made, right? I mean, I'm a carpenter, right? So I build houses, uh, do roofing, siding, but I never really built any furniture. This one came from a barn that was built 120 years ago. And the guy called me up and says, hey, I'm down here. My grandson got a piece. But I just want you to know the family, we, we had to take this old barn down. But the family members have taken all the good pieces. And right away, I'm going, baby, that's what I want, right? I want the one stuff nobody wants because I think I can take something that has little value to other people and make something beautiful. It wasn't until a couple days before his birth that we knew there was something really wrong with him. They asked my wife to come in. They asked me to come in kind of urgently. And they said, you have to go to a meeting. We're going to have a meeting at, at the hospital right now. And the one neontologist said to us, just want you to know there's a 50-50 chance of survival today, right? The only thing I could think about was, I want at least a picture of my kid before he dies, right? So he was born. We got a picture of him. As soon as he came out through C-section, you just heard this little whimper, right? My wife goes, I want to see him. And they said, okay, well, we'll bring him over, but he's really sick. And we were able to see him, got the picture, and that was the start of our journey. And they'd never really given us a clear diagnosis. And they said, hey, we really think you should go to C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor because Evan might die tomorrow. He may live a lifetime. We don't know, right? Months went by. Found out he had Noonan syndrome, but he had a really terrible heart condition that's sometimes associated with that called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There's no cure for that, and it only progressively gets worse. And now we can't get him off the ventilator, so we had to have a trach done, and he was on a little ventilator. And if my wife's goal was that he would die at home. So now the race was just to get Evan well enough where we knew how to run a ventilator, do a feeding tube, run med pumps, that we could go home and Evan could die there. And the prognosis at that time, they said, children usually like Evan don't live past two years. And now we're coming up to a year in the hospital. 
So you can imagine my wife at one time didn't go home for four or five months. So we finally got Evan home, had the nurses living with us. I remember when he first walked, not until he was three years old, we just kept going on. Three years, four years. And Evan was seven years old. It was a day after Thanksgiving, and we had no nurse that day. I was on my computer, and I heard all the alarms go off. I'm close enough, so I run into his room, and he's up there sitting like he's awake, and he's playing. So by him moving around, he sets the alarms off. So silence, reset, push that old favorite button, stop that alarm, and, um, and he took my hand. And so I'm out of the crib. He takes my hand because he couldn't talk, and he could do just two signs more and please, right? Which looked like that. That was his sentence. And he took my hand and he threw it towards the doorway of his room, which meant like he wanted me to leave. So I go outside the room, I get back on my computer, I'm, and the alarms go off again. I'm like, man, you always go running and up there, and this time he's playing again. Now, he, now he's got like a, a Christmas bulb still in a cardboard box, right? He'd push it and play Christmas carols, and he'd look in, and the lights are going on in the room, like, oh my gosh. So I, he pushes me out of the room again. So that happens three, four, five times, right? And uh, the sixth time, the alarms are going again. And so this time, I run back to the room, and this time I can hear my wife coming down the stairs, and she runs into the room, and I'm looking in the crib, and immediately I knew, you know, that he was gone, and my wife, and I'm, I, I think he just died, right? And because he was so sick, we would never call 911 because when you have pediatrics, children, they don't know what to do. And, and we were already warned, like, you know, you'll know when the time has come. And a couple months before that, I'd gotten up in the morning and my wife was already up and they were, she was talking to the nurse and they were talking about hopes and dreams for Evan. And she said um, that Evan would be at his best when he dies. You know, how horrific that a mom has to say that. But that was true. That's where we were at as a family. And my dream as a dad would be, was that I would be there when he died. Well, that day was the day, right? Evan did die at his best, right? Listening to Christmas music, right? Shining the light on the wall. And I was there, right? Within seconds before he died. I think the first time I realized I, I had like this desire to help families. Evan was maybe a month or two old and we'd seen a lot of sick babies and families suffering and we were suffering and crying and not knowing what was gonna happen. And I remember there was a family we had kind of connected with and they had twins and one of the twins was sicker than the other twin. And uh, one day that other baby died. And when that happened, I don't, I had so much empathy for that family and not even really thinking about my own family in that moment. Then when I finally saw the mom kind of come out of the room, right? I didn't even go say anything to her, but I got up and I just kind of maybe nodded. I don't remember really what it was. But I thought, like, I, somebody's got to do something, man. I mean, we can't all hide from this, right? Because we were here together and you become connected with these families. But it was like the really uncomfortable to see how people just couldn't go there, right? And so I started 
like doing that, starting connecting with families. People look at me and they say like, well, where'd you do your training? Are you a counselor? How's this work? Like, how do you do this? And I always say, like, it is self. I, I go, man, look at my hands, right? I'm just a carpenter. Because, like, when I go to the hospital and I help families who are suffering, whose children are dying, or maybe I'm sitting there and they're dying with them, it's not like I get out my Bible and say, hey, we need to really look at the scripture. Sometimes that happens. But most times it's just loving people. So I started to make these toolboxes. And so when I go see families now at, at the hospital, I'll, I, everybody knows me. They're Scott with the toolbox. But when I take it in and I meet new families, I tell families, hey, uh, you know, my name's Scott. I'm a parent too. I usually don't tell them my story. And I will say to them, I know you, this is new to you, right? You're kind of like an apprentice, right? This is like no one in high school taught you how to take care of a kid with Down syndrome or trisomy 18. So today I brought you this apprentice box because I want you to become an expert of your child's care. And it's kind of a metaphor, and, and I want you to know to become an expert of your child's care, everybody here at the hospital has a tool for you. I noticed you like Dr. Anderson, and he gave you a diagnosis, and he's really been helpful. And you always think you need to see Dr. Anderson, but really, you've got Nurse Betty in here, right, today. And she, I know she was actually helping you, right? She was teaching you how to do the feeds and how to run the medication. And so you need to start collecting these tools to become an expert. And maybe even I can help you. I made the handle here out of oak because I always think oak is strength, man, like the oak tree, the strength. And I'm not sure what your family strength is. Maybe you don't even know. I see you have a Bible over there. Maybe that's your family strength. And you had a lot of people up here yesterday. Maybe that's your family strength. But you're going to need something to hold on to as you go on your journey. As we all know, that um, wedges can come into our lives, can't they? And sometimes even childhood illness can be a wedge in family's life. Some, I've seen families here that have struggled, their marriages, their families, because the illness separated things. But if you look real closely here, <clears throat> I don't know if you can see it, I put a wedge in the end of that joint because that actually strengthens the connection, right? So as you go on your journey here with your child, um, start collecting your tools. Find out what your family strength is, something to hold on to. And just realize that all wedges don't need to separate. I think back to when we had gotten the diagnosis that Evan wouldn't live a long life and that he may die in the hospital. He couldn't sit up, he couldn't hardly move, but he used to put up his finger sometimes, right? And I don't know, what, he didn't know what he was doing probably. And I remember thinking, when he did that all the time. Dad, the one thing, man, the one thing, right? Maybe he's trying to tell, tell me the one thing. And immediately, it didn't take me any time at all to know what the answer was, and that's people matter. And so it was more of an affirmation for me that Evan's life did matter and that the one thing that he taught me is that everybody matters. God took Scott's groaning and groaned with him. And that groaning turned into hope. For years now, 
years and years and years, really for 18 years since Evan was born, and the 11 years even since he's been gone, Scott has tirelessly worked in hospitals in this region with families whose children are in dire straits. Imagine the most desperate hospital rooms in Michigan were for families, and Scott Newport has walked into those hospital rooms. God took his pain and gave him a platform to give other people hope along the way. This is what Jesus does. This is why I believe that God is always bringing transformation. He's always working in these situations for his glory to be revealed in flawed people like you and me. That God is always bringing resurrection. And I just want to read you one more verse, the the first verse of Isaiah 61, where it's a messianic verse. It's where, in a sense, pointing to what Jesus would come to do, but it's what we do with Jesus. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What do poor people need? They need good news. They need a break that somebody's going to create some opportunities or give, give them some chances along the way. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. What does a brokenhearted person need any more than just to be held, to be bound and to be held? They don't need words in that moment. What about freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners? He goes on in verse 3 to talk about to give a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That's where we got the title for today's message. That's in verse 3. That he gives us a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I think that's what Scott Newport does day after day, even in the midst of his own despair and his own suffering, his own grief. And I thought, what if Jesus would start to do that in us together even more? Because God's working in this room. God's working in you. God's touching and moving in your heart and wanting you to know that he's there and he's present, that he has not left you alone. And so as we finish today, I, I want to... I'm going to give you an opportunity, just a few minutes. Uh, Aaron and Jen are going to come out for a final song, but I want you to, I want to give you a memento from Scott today. We have enough for everybody, I think, who's here if you want one. But in about the third or fourth year of Evan's life, I think, Scott carved a wooden bunny rabbit for his older son, Noah. Imagine Noah. Noah's living this, he's living the trauma of this journey too, and he loves his brother, and it's a whole, his whole life obviously turned upside down, that he decided to create this bunny. And um, you get the, get, get the camera over here. It's called, the bunny is called, they call it Hop. But when he, again, it's, this is just a replica of the, the, the wooden bunny that he created. And you know how kids love bunny rabbits. And uh, when he put the tail on it, he made it an E. So hop became hope. Well, today, Mott's children and down, down in this Detroit children's, in these places, you'll go into 
hospital rooms where there are really, really sick babies. And you'll find hop there. So it's not, it's not a cute, it's not a little cutesy image of a bunny rabbit. It's like an expression of people that are in the grittiest, most desperate moments of their life. And if you turn it upside down, Scott created it where it becomes joy. Because hope results in joy. And in a minute after this song, I'm going to give you a chance to grab one. I'll explain how that's going to work in just a minute. But I want you to leave here today with hope that Jesus Christ is with you and that he's going to turn your suffering into joy, that he's going to take your pain and give you compassion and and ways to serve others that you never dreamed possible, that we would give our lives together to see God do this because God's just beginning to want to do something in your life and in mine.